Okay, so uh, again, just uh, talking about uh, the background of Muhammad's life, how he grew up, what was he like, what did it look like when Muhammad uh, was called to become a prophet? That's kind of what I want to focus on, the, the life and times of Muhammad. The reason why this is so important is because you remember all the different sources that Muslims have. They have the Quran, they have the Hadith, they have the Tafsir, which are the commentaries on the Quran. Um, they have all these different types of sources. And one of those sources is known as the Sunnah. And the Sunnah, remember, is the example of Muhammad. It comes from different sources like the, the Hadith. And then the Sirah is singular. And then Sirat would be uh, the many biographies that have been written on the life of Muhammad. Okay, And the reason why I want to spend so much time understanding Muhammad himself is because for Muslims, uh, the highest order of life, basically, is to follow in the Sunnah, which is the example, right, the example of their prophet. So they want to follow in line with the things that the prophet himself did, right? Um, and so many Muslims will say, you know, the prophet is our book, the Sunnah is our way, Right? because they want to follow the path of the prophet. And so we want to understand their prophet. We want to understand what was he like, what was his life like. And when we come to a comparison between Islam and Christianity, what we find is that it is uh, totally different. Okay, uh, let's read just for a second here out of Luke. Uh, in terms of Jesus and his understanding of his calling, to do what God had called him to do. Uh, you see here in verse 16, uh, Luke 4, beginning of verse 16. <clears throat> this is a very famous uh, account of Jesus's, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He came to Nazareth where he, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release of the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Uh, maybe just a little bit of an aside here. Uh, notice, uh, notice the aim of Jesus' ministry. The poor, the captives, the blind, uh, the oppressed, right? Who are those people talking about? Was Jesus literally on a uh, humanitarian mission to feed the poor? Was Jesus talking about that what he wanted to spend his time doing was going through the, you know, through the, the, the highways and byways of Jerusalem and feeding the poor, right? I think what he means even more than that, because he certainly did some of that, but what he mainly means there by poor is, as he'll go on to teach, Matthew chapter 5, the poor in spirit. So spiritually poor, not just uh, physically or materialistically poor, right? Uh, the reason that's important is because we have to be careful not to equate Christianity with humanitarianism. I mean, that our calling is to go out. Uh, the main business of life is to do engage in humanitarian activity. How many of you have heard of missions that, ex that, that consists mainly of humanitarian stuff. Feeding people, clothing people, providing water, wells, right, things like that. So I just wanted to take advantage of this reading and clarify that. 
but look at verse 20 and 21. Very, very important of Jesus here. And he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes, uh, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what I want to touch on there is that Jesus understood his calling. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew who God was. Jesus knew that God had called him for a specific purpose, right? Now turn over to John chapter 17, just to build the case. <clears throat> John chapter 17. Just a, uh, one quick verse, verse 4. Right? Jesus is speaking to the Father and praying and communing with the Father. And he says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So in other words, Jesus was fully aware of the work that had been given for him to do on earth. He never doubted that. Well, <clears throat> when we get to um, Muhammad, we have to understand that there are many traditions in Islam. There are many passages um, in the Quran that refer, sort of imply, and especially in the Hadith literature, just write this up here again, but at any time you have any question regarding any of these sources, just ask me, but the Hadiths are talking about the traditions, remember? The traditions of Islam. And so out of the traditions of Islam, we have all of these very strange, very strange accounts of the fact that um, Muhammad really didn't know who he was. He really didn't know if God was calling him. As a matter of fact, it gets worse than that. Um, there are many hadiths that... that uh, seem to imply that Muhammad even thought at some point in time that he could have been oppressed by a demon or even demon-possessed. Um, there's a uh, <clears throat> great German missionary uh, and uh, uh, Muslim scholar by the name of Karl Fander, uh, or Fonder, he's German, and uh, he said that, uh, the, that Gabriel would appear to Muhammad so that he would not kill himself by throwing himself off of a high mountain peak. Um, so again... Uh, you know, people have actually assessed the life of Muhammad. Uh, there is in Buhari alone. Remember, the Hadith has uh, different compilers of traditions. The most important is Buhari. Right? Buhari. And then the second most important is Muslim. Sahih Muslim, the, tradition, the Hadiths of Muslim. Okay, these are some of the most authoritative um, hadith compilers. Well, according to Buhari, the most authoritative hadith compilers, um, uh, we are told in different places that he suffered from some serious uh, health symptoms that um, some have uh, you know, conjectured that maybe Muhammad was epileptic. He would have seizures. He would throw himself on the floor and convulsing. He would have ringing in his ears. He would have an accelerated heart rate. His face with no, no pun, no, nothing intended, Scott. <laughs> Jeez, I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> uh, pray for Scott. He's been having some ringing in his ears. Please pray for him. Uh, but these kinds of things, um, Buhari, Volume 1, 
uh, his hadith number two and number three speak of him being delusional at times, having hearing problems and thinking that he saw something when he did not. Delusional. So we read this as Christians and we say, wait a minute, this is, this is the prophet of God? Uh, he's, he's, you know, having convulsions and throwing himself on the floor and he questions who he is and his calling. He's suicidal. He's trying to throw himself off of a mountain peak. I mean, this is kind of strange for Christians, right? Because we read in the Bible, and Jesus said, you know, I have come <laughs> to proclaim liberty to the captives. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus knew who he was. John the Baptist knew what his calling and his purpose was. The prophets knew what the word of the Lord was. They, they didn't doubt, you know, uh, themselves in this fashion of saying, perhaps, you know, you imagine Isaiah, perhaps... I don't know if my revelation is from God or from the devil, you know? Could be either one, you know? Well, this is where Muhammad was at one point in his life. He was, he was so delusional and he was so confused that he even thought, well, possibly this was all from the devil. So um, just a little bit of background on, on Muhammad there. And, um, you know, there's traditions that Muhammad needed his prophethood to be established by other people. Um, his first wife, Muhammad's first wife, was a, a, a woman by the name of Khadijah. Khadijah. And Khadijah had a Christian background. She went, he went to Khadijah for some solace, for comfort, to try to, to try to get her to confirm his calling. Khadijah is known to have taken Muhammad to see a Nestorian monk. Now, Nestorians are sort of like a heretical Christian sect. And um, uh, one uh, Christian uh, Nestorian monk actually uh, said that he was indeed the prophet. And all sorts of wild stories. Guys, there's, is some, remember I told you last week about the absurdities of the hadith, right? Well, there's some hadith literature that said that, you know, no, you know brace yourselves, but depending on how Muhammad responded to a naked woman, that would determine whether or not he was a prophet. You know, these are the kinds of things that as Christians, you know, um, we struggle with because we're saying that's how you determine whether he was a prophet? Uh, we don't have anything like that in the Bible, I mean, right? Uh, of somebody disrobing in front of one of our prophets to determine whether or not, you know, Isaiah or Jeremiah are called. And so... These are the types of things that Christians struggle with. We don't understand how this could happen. So let's talk a little bit about the early uh, stages of, <clears throat> of Muhammad's life when he, very first time, he began uh, to teach and to preach. You remember there's a progression. Muhammad began preaching his message in Mecca, okay, in Mecca. So here you're talking about somewhere roughly around the early 600s, okay, right around, let's say, 612 as he received some of his initial revelations. And he begins to preach in Mecca, and he began to preach at this stage in time. He began to preach in a way that was peaceful, in a way that was uh, politically correct, I guess we could say, tolerant of other people, tolerant of other views. And that's the way it began. Uh, but very quickly, uh, Muhammad, remember, remember that Mecca, at the time of Muhammad, remember that Mecca was essentially 
polytheistic. Right? Polytheistic, meaning they believe poly, many, they believe in many gods. And the center of Mecca was a shrine by the name of the Kaaba. At the Kaaba, you had all these idols that were representative of all the different tribes and all the different uh, religions and all the different superstitions that were existing in pre-Islamic Arabia prior to the emergence of Islam, right? And so Muhammad begins to preach that there is only one God, right? So this is called Tawheed. Tawheed is um, the Muslim doctrine of the oneness of God. Uh, did you guys see any footage about, um, or, or recently, did you see the footage in France where the terrorists, uh, they videotaped the terrorists shouting uh, Allah Akbar and all of that? Did any of you see any of that footage where they, they pulled up in the street and did you, Miriam, you saw that? Well, one of the terrorists gets out of his car and he starts shouting at the at the. Uh, apartment complexes that are all around him, right? And he starts shouting in Arabic, Allah Akbar, God is great. And then he starts saying, we have avenged the honor of the prophet, you know, after they killed the, uh, the cartoonist, uh, Charlie Hibdo. And he raised up his hand with one finger to, to, the, to the sky. And this is a symbol of Tawheed, the oneness of God. See, for Muslims, this dominates all of their thinking. This is why Christianity is incomprehensible to Muslims. Because God is one and one only. God has no son. He is not a father. There is no spirit apart from Allah. There is only Allah. That's it. And so the unity of, uh, of God is the dominant doctrine in Islam. Tawheed. And so they lift up their hand and they say Tawheed and they shout Allah Akbar because in their mind, this is the greatest doctrine. This is the most important doctrine of all is the oneness of Allah. Okay? And so here comes Muhammad preaching the oneness of Allah and what happens is, is he gets cast out. Very early on, uh, the Meccan community resisted his monotheistic ways and they kicked him out. And so he begins to talk about this in different surahs, in different chapters of the Quran that kind of correspond to this period of time, like Surah 34. He begins to talk about now a certain group of people as disbelievers. They are disbelievers in his message. Well, obviously you know that in the Quran, the identity of those who reject Islam is going to get progressively worse, right? Uh, how bad is it going to get? Well, it's not just a matter of not believing in Islam, okay? Uh, because initially, as Muhammad himself taught, there is no compulsion in religion. Uh, religion is to be propagated peacefully. Well, somehow we went from that to a verse like this in the Quran. <clears throat> it says, those who reject the truth among the people of the book, that is the Jews and the Christians, Anytime you read in the Quran the people of the book, it refers to Jews and Christians. He says, those who reject the truth, the people of the book, and among the polytheists, those are the pagans in Mecca, right, that believed in many gods, there will be hell fire to dwell therein. They are the worst of Allah's creatures. Uh, this is a very politically correct version. There are other versions that say they are the vilest of Allah's creatures. So Christians and Jews, because we reject Tawheed, 
We reject the absolute oneness of God because we believe in a trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, these three are one. Um, we are now, according to the Quran, considered the vilest of God's creatures in the eyes of... So, you know, uh, you know I've asked Muslims about this many times, and they just don't like to talk about this, this chapter and this verse in the Quran. They... They say, well, you have to understand the historical context and what's going on. I said, this is, this is commenting on an emotion or a, a, a perspective. It's not referring to an event, right? It's talking about that in Muhammad's eyes, in Allah's eyes, uh, because they disbelieve Islam, because they are the people of the book and polytheists and, and pagans, uh, so they would put all paganism in this camp. So even paganism today. So, so in, the, in the mind of a, of a Muslim who is a pagan, well, Hindus are pagans, uh, Buddhists are pagans, Wiccans are pagans, uh, all of these types of right, folks in other religions are pagans in their eyes. Uh. And uh, let me, so let me, uh, <clears throat> let me read this. The Quarish tribe, that is the tribe that Muhammad came from, thought that Muhammad was harmless at first until he began to attack the Kaaba and its various idols. These, ad these adversities even led to throwing some of Muhammad's followers into prison. This is according to Will Durant, Age of Faith, a very, very popular historian. historian. So what happens is Muhammad flees Mecca. So he, he goes from Mecca and he flees somewhere and he stays... Uh, he stays with his famous uncle, Abu Talib. Abu Talib. Abu Talib is famous for giving Muhammad refuge at a time of his need. And so is Khadijah, his first wife. Uh, eventually, he would go to the city of Taif. And there at the city of Taif, uh, again, he would begin to try to preach, um, try to preach Islam among a new audience, and at Taif, he begins now to get uh, political figures to listen to his message. And really at Taif, Taif, okay, sorry, Taif, really at Taif, that is where Muhammad gets his first positive response, where people begin to listen now to the message of Islam, to the message of Islam. So, Muhammad goes from Mecca, and then the next place that he's going to go to, where's my eraser? Anybody see? There it is. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Okay, so let me go over here. Uh, then he goes to Medina, right? And in Medina, this is where everything happens. In Medina, this is where Muhammad begins to get Massive revelations, supposedly, from the, prof the, prof or the, the angel Gabriel and from Allah. This is where many of his surahs come, is in this Medinan period. Uh, and remember, there is a first and a second Medinan period. Initially, again, his preaching is one of peace. And slowly, in the second period, the latter period of his time at Medina, he begins to become violent. Okay. Where is Medina located? Medina is located about 200 miles north of Mecca. So north, I think it's north, just northwest or northeast. I don't know. 
<clears throat> Look at my Bible maps just to find <laughs> to find Mecca. Uh, I, I think it's, it's somewhere north of there, 200 miles away. But uh, that is where he began to develop his doctrines. One of his first doctrines that he developed was the doctrine of Polygamy. Polygamy. In Medina, uh, Muhammad began to receive convenient revelations that his followers, if they followed him, they were allowed to have four wives. Four wives. Um, that, is in, that is also found in Surah uh, 34, uh, Ayah 33, where uh, Muslims are prescribed to have four wives. And uh, consequently, Muhammad is given a, a, a convenient uh, revelation in, in chapter 33 that he is allowed to have, essentially, as many wives as he wants and as many concubines as he wants, really. Um, and the way that he is to gain these women is through war. And so, because of war, any women that he takes captive he is allowed to have. So let me just read you. Any questions or comments, feel free to say something or ask something. No stupid questions. I don't know that I'll have, the, I'll have all the answers, but I'll try. Uh, let me find this here. Okay, go ahead. Um, the Book of Haram guy, um, yeah. he had said that about Muhammad, that if Muhammad was allowed to have, you know, as many wives and... He's also called to have, you know, many wives. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And remember, the sunnah is everything. Mm -hmm. So to follow in the example of Muhammad for a Muslim is everything. Okay? Mm -hmm. So um, they don't always do it consistent, consistently even within themselves, right? Because the surah says for Muhammad's followers, they should only have four wives, mm -hmm. right? Only. Only, that's right. <laughs> But that doesn't mean that they can't have other, uh, you know, um, sadly to say it, but, you know, sex slaves from war. I mean, that's, that's a fact. You know, let me read you something here. I know it's disturbing. Um, uh, it's disturbing, you know. Um, I was reading Robert Gagnon, you know, a few weeks ago, and I was reading his book on homosexuality. Well, <laughs> I didn't take much pleasure in it. <laughs> But because of our culture, I have to, you know, get equipped on what's going on and, and the arguments that the liberalism is trying to mount against, you know, the biblical position. Same thing with Islam. I don't take pleasure in reading the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sunnah, and all of that. It doesn't bring me pleasure. Um, it's quite grieving, to be quite honest with you. And uh, much of it is actually very silly. And uh, <clears throat> so, again, uh, Muhammad receives this, uh, this revelation. It is not lawful for thee to marry more women after this. There came a certain point where Muhammad and his wives were to be cut off, but there's an exception, nor to change them for other wives, even though their beauty attracts you. Except, so big exception here, right? Except any that thy right hand should possess, and Allah does watch over all things. It's kind of those last little you know, uh, uh, doxologies that, you know, end these surahs, you know. You'll have a surah like this, like, you know, Muhammad, uh, you know, this is enough wives for you, except 
those that your right hand possesses. Those that your right hand possesses, if you ever read the Quran, it's always talking about slaves. Slaves that they possessed, in, that they took possession of in war. So Allah is saying, you know, you've had enough, you know, wives through natural, normal acquiring of many wives. Now, the only other wives you can get is through war. So, do you think there's a connection between how many wars Muhammad wanted to fight and, and, and this revelation right here? <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, if the way to have a, a bigger, you know, uh, amount of wives, a larger amount of wives was through war, well then, uh, by all means, Muhammad probably was looking forward to some of these battles. Um, now, let's get to something even more controversial. And that is uh, with respect, just let me know if you need me to rewrite anything. And that is uh, with respect to one of Muhammad's wives. I think many of you know what I'm talking about. Her name is, it's pronounced different ways, or uh, it's written different ways. Aisha um, is known, very, very much known uh, among Muslims to be Muhammad's favorite wife. And again, again, just like with the calling of Muhammad, his doubt, his self, you know, his doubting of his calling, his doubting himself, doubting if he heard the devil or that he heard God. Uh, as Christians, we look at that and we scratch our head and wonder, what? You know, uh, Jesus knew who he was, right? Uh, in the same way that that doesn't make any sense to our worldview. Aisha really doesn't make sense to our worldview. Aisha was married uh, to Muhammad at the age of six, and he uh, consummated the marriage with her when she was nine years old. And Muhammad at this time is, uh, I want to say he was 52 at the time that he married Aisha. Yes, sir. This has come up before, and... Uh, when engaging a Muslim in conversation regarding this particular issue, yeah. uh, and they bring up Mary uh, being <clears throat> possibly 11, 12, 13 years old. And one of their arguments is, well, that's kind of what the culture was like, yeah. where it was, it was perfectly normal to marry a young child off. So as a Christian... And I know that, that the, the idea that Mary was such a young person was set to Mary at such a young age, and Joseph being a much older man, um, <clears throat> why is it different? Well, first of all, the facts. <laughs> uh, you, you have to establish the facts. So what I would do is immediately call them on their facts. I would say, uh, do you have any sources that show that Mary was 11 years old. I mean, I've studied a lot of historical sources on, on Scripture. No one that I know, any respected scholar that I've ever heard of, would ever give Mary a day, uh, an age of 11. Uh, I heard, you know, that a, um, uh, that a girl in her category is more, more around the age of 16. Uh, 11 is, is, again, I, I don't know one scholar that would date her at 11 years old. You know what I mean? Or that would put an age on her at 11 years. So I would call them on that. Right. So people throw out information like that and hoping that you'll just, you know, that you'll just go along with it. Well, I don't go along with it. I demand <laughs> sources. I demand information. I want citations. I want specific references. 
right, where I can give specific references from the hadith, their own sources, right? So the dilemma with Islam is different because it would be as if the Bible itself says Mary was 11 and Joseph was 40, okay? Uh, then I can see, you know what I mean, that they have a leg to stand on. Well, they don't. And, uh, and the problem for them is that their own sources document this. Um, Aisha herself in Buhari uh, is, is talking about that she remembers being married to the, to the prophet at that age, and she remembers that she was still playing with her dolls when he took her. I mean, so this is what people cannot wrap their mind around. This is supposed to be a holy prophet of God, and he's marrying a six-year-old, and he is consummating the marriage at nine years old. The Arabic word leaves nothing to, leaves nothing to the imagination. I mean, it means that he uh, had relations with her at nine years old, and this is a 50-some-odd-year-old man. It boggles the mind. Uh, Muslims hate to talk about this. <laughs> this is a very sore spot for them. Um, any questions? What's their response? Their response is, is typically that um, back then, uh, I've heard all kinds of crazy responses, that uh, every, everything from back then, women uh, matured quicker, right? So they reached the age of puberty quicker than today, which is scientifically refutable. You know what I mean? There's no such evidence <laughs> that just, you know, just in the 8th, 6th, 8th, 7th, 8th century, you know, women were reaching puberty at a younger age. There's just absolutely no evidence for that. Uh, from that to a gentleman that I spoke to when I was in Israel, standing outside of a monastery in Jericho, who told me, if the Quran teaches it, we don't question it. I said, but what are you talking about? I mean, you're talking about a 50-year-old man. We don't question it. And we leave it at that. So... At some point, among themselves, when they get together, they have no problem accepting the hadith. And uh, just recently, the whole issue of child brides exploded all over uh, the Muslim world. Uh, the Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia himself coming out and saying, child brides is permissible. The, the Prophet did it himself. Uh, another cleric in Saudi Arabia said, we put no age limit on a child bride. <sighs> what? I mean, to us, it just... It, it, this is a real sticking point for obvious reasons. Um, but Muhammad, moving on from here, um, I mean, she was 18 years old when he died at, you know, 58 or something like that. So, you know, obviously she's too young, uh, f you know, at any age. So, um, so, you know, at this point, his ministry begins, and there is... Um, all sorts of events that are now happening in the life of Muhammad. He has, uh, he has a very significant event uh, known as the Jerusalem, the Jerusalem vision. Okay? The Jerusalem vision is a vision that Muhammad supposedly had, that he was taken, transported in a vision to Jerusalem. <laughs> And there he saw the Jews, and he, he saw that they were wailing at the wall, and he saw the duress of the Jewish people. This is very early on now, okay, in Medina. And that, um, and that on the basis of that vision, he established the fact that, <clears throat> that, that uh, Muslims were now to begin to pray in the direction of Jerusalem. So 
What direction did Muslims pray in now? They prayed towards Mecca. But early on, Muhammad instructed his followers to pray to Jerusalem, and consequently it became the third holiest site in Islam uh, for that reason. Well, early on, the Jews interpreted that as Muhammad having a peaceful relationship with them. And so they, some of them, even according to some uh, scholars, some Jews even began converting to Islam uh, because he was talking some of their language, quoting some of their prophets, and doing these kinds of things. Um, you can find every weird and wacky sect of everything in pre-Islamic Arabia. You had Caloridians. Where do... Um, where do Muslims get the idea that Mary was part of the Trinity? <coughs> well, certainly for Christians, again, we scratch our heads and we wonder, what? I mean, the Trinity does not consist of Mary. <laughs> but they have a surah where they talk about that, where they, they actually identify Mary as part of the Trinity, the Godhead. Okay, well, we know from pre-Islamic times that there were certain Coloridian sects Coloridians were a, 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 um, they were a cult of Christianity that deified Mary. Well, Muhammad would have interacted with these Coloridians, and that's where his idea that some people of the book believe that Mary is divine. So, you know, all of these things. Remember I told you at the very beginning, there's nothing new in Islam. Everything can be accounted for in Islam, right? There are stories about... Um, Muhammad doing some things in his birth, um, you know, making um, you know making birds out of dust and stuff like that. Well, all of those stories can be can be traced all the way back to the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostic Gospel of Thomas has Jesus as a baby or as a young man, as a young boy, making doves out of mud. You see what I'm saying? So everything, you know, scholars that really examine all of this, they, they see like there's a lot of forgery, there's a lot of plagiarism, there's a lot of, it just seems as if Muhammad picked up stories here and there, and, and if he had anything to do with the, with the uh, Quran or not, we don't even know that. But uh, all of these stories somehow made their way in a very garbled kind of a fashion into the Quran. Question? You already answered it. Okay. Talking about the Gnostic Gospels. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that, that's part of it. So, again, Surah 2, verse 256, there is no compulsion in religion. In Surah 5, he tells people to take care of their own beliefs, and uh, then things begin to fall apart after that. We see very, very quickly that Muhammad begins to now uh, change his tune, that uh, initially, the Jews were receptive of his message, but ultimately, they rejected the message. And this is, you know, not to get political, right? But why does it seem like the whole Muslim world hates Israel, right? Uh, you know, separate our theological perspective of Israel for a minute. Why does it seem like all the Muslim world hates Israel? I remember uh, as a young, when I was Oh, a teenager, I had a, a, a Palestinian friend, and in his room, he had all of these posters of the Holocaust. And, you know, the, just the, the vile pictures of the Holocaust. And he would make fun of the Jewish people. Well, I didn't, back then, you know, I was, I was as unregenerate as he was. 
So I didn't know, and I, I just didn't understand what his big problem was with the Jewish people, okay? But he did, and, uh, and, and many think that it comes back to this very thing, that after, uh, after the Jews rejected the preaching of Muhammad, um, Muhammad is, you know, Muslims regarded the Jews as the sworn enemies of Allah. And uh, because they supposedly betrayed him in certain geopolitical maneuvers, that they were supposed to back him with, against certain tribes, and they betrayed his trust, and therefore they became the sworn enemies of Allah. Um, <clears throat> let me read to you this. This is important. Many of the religious ceremonies that once probably pleased the Jews, observing the Sabbath, the dietary laws, the prayer towards Jerusalem, uh, was now going to be toward Mecca as a sign that Muhammad would conquer it one day. So at that point, when relationship with the Jews began to fall down, break, break down, then Muhammad changed the direction of what's known as the Qibla, the direction of prayer. He changed the direction to Mecca, and it was a foreshadow that one day he would overthrow Mecca and obtain Mecca, because that's what he really wanted. He wanted to uh, go back to the original place, to Mecca, where he was originally preaching. Remember, Muhammad grew up in Mecca. He was from the, uh, the Quraysh tribe. Right? He was from the Quraysh tribe that is in Mecca. And he feels like his own people betrayed him. And so his ultimate goal is to go back to Mecca to get revenge and to defeat, you know, the people that betrayed him, his own. That's so different, right, from what we see in the Gospels, right? Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, he gave him authority to become children of God who were not born of flesh or blood uh, or the will of man, but of God. Um, and Jesus doesn't seek revenge on the Jewish people. He doesn't instruct the, the Christians to go back to Jerusalem and to overthrow Jerusalem, right, or something like that. Uh, far from it. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. You know, the Apostle Paul says, I wish I would be accursed for the sake of my brethren, of my countrymen. You know, it's a complete opposite. Um, so, uh, all of a sudden, you have all of these revelations that begin to happen uh, as Muhammad conquers Mecca and Islam begins to spread, then you have all of these surahs that show that Muhammad became a very powerful military leader in the area. You have to understand, how did Islam spread the way that it did? It spread because the area and the region that Muhammad was in, there were many uh, disillusioned, disenfranchised, nomadic tribes people that really had no purpose. They were really not um, prospering in their own tribes. Muhammad began, began uh, to get popular, and so people began to just give in. Um, they began to, to give in. So uh, there's, a, um, there's a very uh, important verse here. Uh, let me read it to you. This is, this is in Surah uh, 9. Surah 9, talking about uh, this whole thing of wars and, you know, him becoming a military leader. Where is it? 29, that's right. See, I, when I take my Quran to do evangelism with Muslims, I, you know, writing in your Quran is forbidden for Muslims. 
I try not to show them that I wrote in it <laughs> so they don't get offended, overly offended, you know. But I write all sorts of important information in my Quran so that I have it right there and I could show it to them. But in Surah 9, uh, verse 29, uh, for example, <coughs> read to you an important verse. Fight those who do not believe in Allah or the last day, nor hold that forbidden which, which has been for, forbidden by Allah and his messenger, nor acknowledge the religion of truth from among the people of the book, Jews and Christians. Unt so fight them until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. So what is the jizya? The jizya is a taxation system that allows people who do not want to convert to Islam to exist under Islam at a certain price. So you have to pay taxes to Muhammad and to Islam and to the Ummah, the community of Islam, if you want to be allowed to live. Um, is this, defined with that, how much, or is that depending upon the powers that be at that time? I, I think there is an exact number. I can't remember right now off the top of my head. Uh, I want to say... I want like to hide. <laughs> 10%. I don't, I don't think it's that much. I think it's like 8%. But um, at any rate, listen to the tone, though, until they feel themselves subdued. Well, what does that mean? Right? Imagine President Obama getting out there and saying, you're going to pay taxes until you feel subdued. <laughs> we would say, we're under tyranny. Some people already would say that, but anyway, you know, some people would get really upset at a, you know, at, at something like that because it's no longer just about getting along, you know, uh, legally or something like that, operating in society. It's about take be, becoming a certain class in, in 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 their society. Definitely second class citizens until you feel subdued. The Arabic word is actually translated humiliated. Until you feel humiliated for having rejected Islam. And now you have to pay taxes. Yes, sir? I was reading that when they pay that tax, they also, like, strike them in the neck to simulate beheading or something. That, they, that that's part of the yeah. humiliation. I, I don't know. I've not read that. But um, maybe, I mean, you know, maybe I know that ISIS right now in Syria and Iraq, I know that ISIS, are, they're trying to implement the jizya, the taxation. It's just... You know, the, the, these Muslims in, you know, in ISIS, I mean, they're really trying to live out the Muslim dream. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're really trying to impose all of this stuff. I want to show a video before we, before we end. Um, let me just see here. Another very important thing that I want to mention quickly about the Prophet is that according to Islamic tradition... The miracle of Islam and the miracle of the prophethood of Islam is that Muhammad could not read and he could not write. However, we have, um, we have hadiths that say that Muhammad uh, actually, apparently, could read and he could write. Apparently, Muhammad asked at one point for a, uh, a piece of paper to write upon. So even that, the very miracle they looked to which to us is kind of like, that's the miracle? Yeah. He can't read, he can't write, that's the miracle? 
And the way that Muslims rationalize that is they say, well, the reason why Allah did that is because in past times, when people did miracles, they were never heard, and they were persecuted. You know, I've had Muslims tell me, just look at Jesus, your own prophet, right? You believe in Jesus. He was persecuted for doing miracles. Moses was persecuted for doing miracles. That's why Allah didn't require Muhammad to do miracles. Oh, if that kind of argument convinces you, well, then, you know, I probably want to sell you something. Let, let me play this, uh, and what this is here is, um, this is a video uh, that was done by my, my buddy Josh for I-Square Ministries, and uh, it's just cool, it just kind of gives you a little bit of, uh, it gives you a little bit of a appreciation of the Muslim challenge and kind of what we're up against. We saw a little bit of that yesterday, Hunt. Uh, Robert, Robert's probably mad at me because I'm not talking about anything from yesterday. <laughs> Might talk a little bit about it, but uh, we did. We went down to the Texas rally in Garland, and uh, I did interact with a Muslim uh, for about an hour, huh? Yeah, it was that. And uh, ironically enough, uh, we went over there looking for a Muslim to talk to, and who do I talk to? I talked to Ryan. <laughs> that was his name, Ryan. <laughs> Ryan Holly? And, uh, <laughs> you know, Ryan's just... Looks like an all-American guy, and uh, he converted to Islam about 15 years ago. And um, he knew quite a bit about Islam, actually. Um, I, was actually I actually had a good conversation with him. At some point, though, he backed out of the conversation and said, you know, we need to get, we need to, um, we need to get an imam involved, yeah. Yeah, because he just, some of the questions I was posing to him, he was just, really un unaware of or he was unable to to answer let's watch this Ooh. population in the last hundred years from 230 million Muslims 
to 1.5 billion Muslims. You may know that there's an estimated 37,000 Muslims who die without the gospel every day. They've created some 30,000 of these schools training Muslims how to be good Muslims. The madrasas or the Islamic schools taught students from the ages of nine years old all the way up to 18 and how to submit to the Sharia law, to follow the Prophet Muhammad, to follow the Sunnah, the example of Muhammad, to follow the Quran, the Islamic traditions. They're taught the difference between being a pious Muslim and the Kufar, the unbelievers, the pagans, the Jews, the Christians, and how to live out their faith throughout their life. And they're taught how to challenge Christianity. Gentlemen, why, why aren't you Christians? Why aren't you Christians? Because yeah. Christianity is not the right way. Why is that? Because, because Christianity speaks for itself. It has many contradictions in it. Okay. What is that? Have you seen God? Have I seen God? No, he's invisible. Right? He's invisible. But how can some Christians say, but he's Jesus? How can Jesus be God, but he's invisible? Jesus sleep. I asked a Christian. Jesus slept. Right. Jesus went to the toilet. Right. Jesus made. Jesus done many things. Yeah. yeah. Jesus done many things. Yeah. Does God go to the toilet? If Jesus is God, I would like you to show me one verse, only one statement, anywhere in your Bible, any version of the Bible where Jesus says, "I'm God," or where. He says, worship me, and by God, you will be uh, this is, real quick, the reason I'm stopping this is because this is Ahmed Didat, and uh, Didat is, even today, known as the greatest uh, Muslim apologist of all time. Um, he's still alive? No. And he's not alive, but he uh, he debated Jimmy Swagger back in, I think, the, the, the 80s, I think it was, and... Uh, they still circulate the debate with Jimmy Swagger all around the Muslim world as proof of how stupid Christianity is and how powerful Islam is. So they, they use that debate. <laughs> we have nobody better than Jimmy Swagger to debate Didat. Uh, okay, you know. Uh, but uh, so this is Ahmed Didat. So we'll just. Father is a person, the Son is a person, and the Holy Ghost is a person. That's what Brother Swagger says in his book. Person, 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 but not three person, but one person. I'm asking what language are you speaking? There is not a single unequivocal statement in the complete Bible where Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, says, I am God, or where he says, worship me. In fact, if we read the Bible, it is mentioned in the Gospel of John, chapter number 14, verse number 28, he said, My father is greater than I. Gospel of John, chapter number 10, verse number 29, My father is greater than all. Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 12, verse number 28. I cast out devils with the Spirit of God. Gospel of John, chapter number 5, verse number 30. I can of my own self do nothing. So these top apologists that are now... So, there you go. Uh, video's about half hour, but, um, uh, you know, just to show you, you know, how serious these people are about Islam, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty daunting. Those pictures of all the Muslims in white, right, that's from Mecca. So every year, annual pilgrimage to Mecca, there's four million Muslims in attendance. Uh, we think of the Million Man March here or something like that. Okay, times four, you know, every year going to Mecca, all of them in perfect unison, bowing and praying towards Mecca, towards the Kaaba, um, and doing a lot of the things that Muhammad, you know, instituted when he was, 
when he was alive. And uh, a lot of it, like I said, you know, can be traced back to pre-Islamic Arabia.